So we're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and that can be found in page, on page 472 of the Bibles from the church. Few Bibles. No, you don't call them few Bibles anymore, eh? Anyway, let's have a look at what God has to say. Um, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labours at which they toll, toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, Look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. And then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Thanks, Bob. Well, I've got to admit, when I was uh, on the exercise bike at 7.30 this morning and and Scott rang me after last week and one of my application being that perhaps trusting in the strength of God means if I'm sick, ringing Scott and flicking him my sermon, I had to admit it took me a little while to think, to to decide, no, this isn't a practical joke. Scott really is sick. I was trying to do that just giving enough sympathy, sympathy in case it proved to be true. Luckily, I did that, or uh, otherwise it would have been really mean if I was like, good one, Scott, good one. (laughs) Jane said to me just before, at least I can be comforted that at least one person was listening to my sermon last week, Scott. (laughs) So we're doing Ecclesiastes today, which we were going to be doing in about four weeks' time. We've moved it to the front and we'll come back to Ruth at the end. And um, this this book is, um, as you saw not exactly the most uplifting in tone. This is how it starts. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. 
Or another translation, futile, futile laments the teacher, absolutely futile, everything is futile. What a way to start a book, to start by saying that, that everything is completely meaningless. And of course, the book not only starts that way, if you were to jump to the end of the book, chapter 12, verse 8, it goes like this, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, everything is meaningless. And if you read the whole book, very worthwhile doing, everything in between pretty much says the same thing as, as well. And I reckon to make things worse, this isn't written by a kind of emo teenager who's gotten out of the wrong side of the bed with a cold. It's written by somebody who's considered incredibly wise, someone who was the king over Israel, quite possibly King Solomon himself. It's the conclusion, this book, of a lifetime of careful research and observation and experimentation. Look at verse 12 in chapter 1. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. And his conclusions? What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, are chasing after the wind. How on earth should we understand a book like this? How should we understand what God's message to us is? This is God's Word. What is God saying to us in a book like this? Now, the obvious thing from this book that we've got to do first of all, if we're going to take this book seriously, is we need to seize the futility of life. Now, for some of us, this comes naturally. Maybe we suffer from depression and and we feel that everything's futile in life. We often measure the value of life by whether we feel life is valuable or not, but that's not what the writer's talking about here. He's not saying that everything is futile because he feels like it's futile. He's saying that objectively, life is futile. That when you balance the ledger, when you you add everything up, the net gain of, of life is zero. Verse 3, this is where we see this, and in many places. What do people gain from all their labours at which they toil under the sun? And on every page throughout this book, the answer is nothing. Because in Ecclesiastes, all of of humanity's efforts and endeavours, they're futile because they're all transient. They don't last. They're short-lived. They're fleeting. They don't amount to anything in the end. They, they just wind on and on until we die and then things wind on and on till everything that we've ever achieved is crushed and gone and forgotten. I mean, who, what was your great-grandmother's name? Some of you would be able to say. What was her favourite food? What were, what were her hopes and dreams for life? gone. Death has the final word on all our human endeavours and whether we feel like life is futile or not, it doesn't change the fact that in the end it's objectively futile. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2 verse 15. I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? 
I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Now we come up with our different ways to try and soften the blow of this. We say things like, death's just a natural part of life. Or death's peaceful rest, rest in peace. Or we say things like, I wouldn't want to live forever anyway. But Ecclesiastes ruthlessly uncovers that these things are just lies, actually. Death's an enemy. And actually, the shadow of death covers life, even. And and in many ways, it makes a mockery of life. Death makes life objectively futile. For most of us, at least at some point in our lives, we, we feel the objective futility of life in our own experience. A guy called Henry David Thoreau, who's a, uh, a philosopher and writer from the 19th century, he says, most men live lives of quiet desperation and go to the grave with the song still in them. Most men live lives of quiet desperation and go to the grave with the song still in them. I think this is the song of Ecclesiastes, the song of quiet desperation. Now, at this point, let me ask you, do you agree that what you observe in the world, that everything that you observe, whether good or bad, that it's like a mist in the end that passes? It's very hard to latch hold of it, to to feel its substance, to actually find meaning in the things of this world. I actually reckon Australians have a growing awareness that that what we're chasing after is eluding us, a growing awareness that our endeavours in some ways are futile, that no matter what we do, we just can't find meaning, we just can't get the satisfaction that we're looking for. But I think very few of us are brave enough to, to face up to it and honestly stare it in the eyes like the writer of Ecclesiastes is willing to do here. This is kind of honesty like most of us don't even dare to write about. In Ecclesiastes, the writer systematically undermines any illusions that we have that life is anything other than futile. So in Ecclesiastes, he he details his quest to find something of substance, to find meaning. He tries tries to find something that that will last. So first with wealth, then with wine, then with wisdom, then with women... And then with work, I don't think he was deliberately following W, but it, but it actually works. Wealth, wine, wisdom, women, work, these are the things he tries. And to me, it sounds a little bit like the writer of Ecclesiastes is an Aussie bloke. I mean, isn't this the quest of Australians today? Alcohol, sex, money, career, they're the same kind of things, even though we're now thousands of years later, we still pursue the same things. And the writer of Ecclesiastes, thousands of years ago would say to us, we're still chasing down the same dead ends. But at this point, let me just say, we mustn't hear the writer saying that these things that we're chasing are bad things. He's not saying that at all. It's actually because they're incredibly good things that the chase of them 
is futile and meaningless because they don't last. That's the problem. They are incredibly good things, worth chasing in one sense, but so futile and meaningless because we can never actually hold on to them. We're going to very briefly consider some of the things in his quest that he chased after, some of the things he tried to find meaning in. So listen to some of the king's gems on wealth. Chapter 5, verse 10. Chapter 5, verse 10. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. Now, how true is this? Still a a couple of thousand years later, two and a half, nearly 3,000 years later. Clive Hamilton, in, in his book called Affluenza, Affluenza. He writes about Australians and he says, our houses are bigger than ever, but our families are smaller. Our kids go to the best schools we can afford, but we hardly see them. We've got more money to spend, yet we're further in debt than ever before. What is going on? Money can never satisfy. That's what's going on. Love of money will always be a a kind of unrequited love. We can be so silly because even Disney movies kind of tell us this, that living for money is empty and yet we still try it in different ways. Or in chapter 5, still look at verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a labourer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt." Love of money actually causes us harm. And look where the drive for money can lead us in verse 17. All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction and anger. You eat breakfast and you go to work and it's dark. You get home and you eat dinner and it's dark. And you whinge to your family about work. Not that your kids really get to hear you that much because they go to bed at seven and sometimes you're home after that. And then the cruel irony is you can't get to sleep because you're worrying about work. I remember one time when I was a pharmacist working in pharmacy, lamenting that the whole summer I'd spent in a freezer. Our air conditioning was sort of out of control for some reason. And so the whole summer just... Wasted away, shivering. Though I had a friend who literally worked in a fridge for the whole summer, packing cheese into a box. And so his summer was lost to that. There's a futility in our work and in our drive for money. Ecclesiastes 5.16 captures it. Especially when you take it as a whole, there's a futility. Ecclesiastes 5 captures this, verse 15 and 16. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? Obviously, we start and end life without money. And because of death, what have we gained at the end? We don't. When we view our work as a whole... From its end point, what do we toil for? 
Well, Ecclesiastes keeps saying, for the wind, for nothing that lasts. We're so prone, though, as humans to live for money. It's, it's probably one of the most distinguishing features of humanity. Clive Hamilton has a, has a poem where he, he has groupings of species, and, and that's what the whole poem is. And the last line goes like this. Parliament of owls, murder of crows, pride of lions, greed of humans. It's very, very stark and powerful. But as Ecclesiastes makes so clear, money just won't satisfy us and love of money actually does us harm. And in the end, when we die, what does money mean? Nothing. The writer, he, he looked to work, he looked to money uh, for meaning, but he had to conclude that it just wasn't there. And so he also tries, as we work our way very briefly through the list, he also tries pleasure. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Back in chapter 2 now. Chapter 2, verse 1. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. And look at what he tries, verse 3. I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. Or verse 4, sorry. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself. Verse 5, I made gardens and parks. Verse 8, I amassed silver and gold for myself. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. This guy, he drinks and parties a lot. He throws himself into real estate. He makes a stack of money. He's into his music he has as much sex with, his, with as many people as he wants. Again, he sounds like some Australians to me, except as a king, he's able to go well beyond what most people can and to live for pleasure, unlike what the most, of us, most of us are able to. Verse 10, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Could you imagine doing everything you ever wanted, having no moral or financial limits, He sounds to me like a kind of -of out-of-control uni student living the college life on steroids. And what's his conclusion? Verse 11. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Living for pleasure, it doesn't satisfy Our culture really, really needs to hear this because we have become a society that is all on about living for pleasure as the highest end. But it's meaningless. Pleasure doesn't last. And wherever there's pleasure, of course, there's also the rule of diminishing returns. You need more and more, but you get less and less. The writer of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes looked to work, money and pleasure for something in this world that would last and he concluded meaningless. Now, I don't know whether you're at that point yet. This guy had a lifetime of a journey to reach this really, really um, clear but depressing point. I suspect we're not on the same page completely with him. We could follow his quest further 
but it's the same at, at every, every, every turn. The conclusion is the same. I encourage you to read all 12 chapters later on. At every point, everything is futile because everything ends. And according to the book of Ecclesiastes, and so according to God, if you can't grasp that, you can't grasp reality. If we're not seeing that things aren't going to last and there's a meaningless to it, we actually are not properly seeing the reality of this world. We're likely to live life chasing after the wind but, but getting nowhere, never finding true meaning. I remember uh, meeting a 60-year-old uh, guy in Sydney who was what um, many people would want to be, very successful in work. He lived sort of on the north shore of Sydney, so kind of a uh, very wealthy area and, um, and a kind of very busy, successful consultant. And he said to me, He's yet to meet a 50-year-old man, father, who doesn't kind of have a crisis where they just stop and go, I don't know my kids. What on earth have I been working for? All of this, what is it even for? At this point, they have that moment where they're seeing what the writer of Ecclesiastes sees with brilliant clarity. They get to taste it just in that moment. Verse 14 in chapter 1, I have seen all the things that are done under the sun, all of them are meaningless, are chasing after the wind. You've got an inadequate picture of this world if you don't grasp its futility. And yet, thank goodness, Ecclesiastes won't let us stop there. It takes another step. Because you also have an inadequate view of this world if you don't grasp its maker, if you don't grasp that behind this world is the person who has made this world. Ecclesiastes tells us that in the the face of this world's futility, you need to seize the hand of God. That's our next point. In the face of this world's futility, we need to seize the hand of God. Now, Ecclesiastes has glimpses of this throughout the book, but it's actually not till the final words that you get to see this point clearly and and powerfully in chapter 12 verse 13 have a look chapter 12 right at the end again verse 13 the closing kind of statements now all has been heard here is the conclusion of the matter We've seen how futile life is over 12 long and painful chapters. What's the conclusion? What's the verdict? Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. When we seize the futility of this this world, this should actually lead us to conclude that we need to fear God and obey Him. We need to seize the hand of God. Because... God is is the only thing that's not transient and fleeting. God is the only one who can anchor us in a fleeting world. The only one who can give us meaning in a meaningless world. Essentially what this means is that if we try to find meaning anywhere else, we'll fail. Things like money and education and work and sex and, and relationships, they just can't handle the pressure of of being our meaning in life. They can't handle it. They'll buckle and break. 
they're transient, they're fleeting, they're not made to, to bear that kind of weight of, of us finding our meaning in them. Only God is eternal. Only God can bear the weight of meaning. And once we've got that, it's a very small point in Ecclesiastes, but once we've got that, it brings us to our final point. Small in how much time it's given, but a huge point in the way it changes everything. See, it's only once you've seized the futility of this world and once you've seized the hand of God that you can then do what the Dead Poet Society character would tell us to do, seize the day, carpe diem. Have a look at chapter 3, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 12. Having seized the futility of this world and only if we seize the, God, uh, the hand of God, then can we seize the day. Chapter 3, verse 12. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. Now, I feel a little bit frustrated at the writer of Ecclesiastes at this point. After telling us so, so much and with such um, stark detail that life is futile, that food and drink and work can't satisfy us and that they're, that they're empty, how can the writer now say to us to enjoy them? How can he now tell us to go and enjoy them? How can he tell us, if you like, to seize the day? And this is just one example. This is a repeated kind of message in the book of Ecclesiastes. Well, the answer is because of verse 13. We enjoy them as God's gift. That's how. I've been married for about, oh, I think 17 and a half years now to Kathy. But I still remember asking Kathy to marry me. It was on the edge of an um, escarpment, which was not intentional. It was, I thought it was a good view, though. And we sat down on the cliff, and, and um, I had a picnic that I'd packed and um, pulled out the ring. Now, imagine how it, I would feel if at that point Kathy sort of ignored my question and got fixated on the ring, the gift. It was never going to happen because we were uni students at the time and the ring cost $250. But imagine if she did, if she was, if she was more on about the gift and missed the whole purpose of the gift, the meaning of the gift, which was all about relationship. Well, when we're making anything other than God our meaning in our life, that's exactly what we're doing. We're focusing on the gift and not on the giver. And in the end, the, the gift without the giver is meaningless, just like an engagement ring without a fiancé is pretty strange. It's the same for us, for us to be on about the gift without God, the giver. Well, it's more than strange. It's wrong. It's evil. It's depravity. Pleasure, work, money, whatever it is, without God is meaningless. We have three options, I, I think, when it comes to seizing the day. So first, we can try to seize the day without seeing the futility of the world. So we seize the day, but we, but we refuse to see the futility of the world. I think in the end, it'll catch up with us. In the end, we'll realise it's just a chasing after the wind, 
when we finally stop running and look down, we'll see that our hands are empty and we haven't managed to catch hold of anything that actually matters and lasts. Option two, we can try and seize the day, but actually recognize that that there is a futility to the world, but not see God. So, yep, going to seize the day. Yep, I recognize that it's meaningless, but nonetheless, I'm still going to seize the day. What we're trying to do if we do that is we're trying to delude ourselves. We're trying to fool ourselves that, that life really is meaningful. And this is exactly the kind of thing that the philosopher Albert Camus recommends. He says that in the face of meaninglessness, in the face of no meaning, what he writes is, people can strive to be heroic nihilists, living with dignity in the face of absurdity, rebelling against and transcending the world's indifference. To me, this sounds like life is yelling at us, life is meaningless, and we're kind of closing our ears and going, shut up, it's going to be meaningful to me whether it kills me to do it. That sounds absurd to me. Ecclesiastes tells us the only viable option The third option, we can only successfully seize the day when we see the futility of this world and we see that it's actually ultimately from the hand of God. God is the one who subjected the world to futility and God is the one who offers hope that this futility can be broken. We seize the day when we enjoy the day-to-day things as a gift from God. And rather than resting on pleasure and money for meaning, we rest on God. And it's then and only then that we can properly enjoy pleasure and money and work because we enjoy them in relationship with God. But even having said that, these things, they're still only ever transient. Listen to Ecclesiastes 9 verse 7. He writes, Go, eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. Verse 9, enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. All your meaningless days, for this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might for in the realm of the dead where you are going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. What we identify here is that there's a kind of unresolved problem in Ecclesiastes. There's, there's a tension that Ecclesiastes just can't answer, actually. God's not transient, but we are, and our life is. And so we can enjoy life despite its futility, but that's not an adequate answer in the end. And Ecclesiastes just can't give us the answer we need. We still die. We still need more. But we know from the whole of Scripture that we have more. The answer to our futility in the end isn't that we seize God's hand, but it's actually that God reaches down and seizes our hand when Jesus outstretches His hands on the cross. The answer is not we seize God's hand in the end. The answer is that He reaches down and seizes us and overcomes the meaninglessness of this world on our behalf. It was God who subjected this world to this futility. That's from God, because of our sin. And it's God who's rescued this world from futility. 
by Jesus taking that punishment for sin onto himself. And now because of Jesus, we can not only seize the day today, but we, we actually are the people who can seize not only today, but the day that is to come as well. We live for the day when Jesus will return and rescue us from the futility of this world by reversing the curse. This is exactly what Romans talks about in chapter 8. Verse 20 says, The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, God. But He did it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage and corruption. We're going to be set free from the, fu- the futility that the writer of the Ecclesiastes is raging against. The futility that, that we ourselves feel in life when Jesus returns we're going to be set free from that futility. And the good news is that in the meantime, what we do for that day that's to come, as we live now for that day that's to come, that's not in vain either. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's not in vain. It's not vanity. It's not meaningless. It's not futile. Jesus has overcome sin and death. He's overcome futility so that our work in the Lord is not in vain. It has eternal significance. That's a tune that we can sing that the book of Ecclesiastes could only hope for and look forward to. Do you know that the original use of carpe diem was by the Roman poet Horace, who was born in about 65 BC? And the original poem, Carpe Diem, Seize the Day, it ended with this line, Seize the day, trusting as little as possible in the future. Seize the day, trusting as little as possible in the future. That's the complete opposite to what we know. We can't live by that poem. We seize the day because we can trust completely in the future. We still seize the day, but we do it trusting completely in the future. Our future is with Jesus, and it's a future without futility. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this really awkward and and difficult book of Ecclesiastes, which we find so hard to wrestle with, which points to the emptiness of this life in the face of death. Lord, we know that that death is not your plan for this creation, that it's, it's what's come because of our sin, our rebellion against you. And we thank you, Lord, so much that death is not your final goal for creation, that you, in the death of Jesus, have made a way for us to escape the futility of this life and to find, finally, true meaning, true significance as we know you and live for you. Lord, we thank you that because of Jesus, we can know that now. We don't have to wait till his return, but because of that day to come, We can find meaning in the day today. We can seize the day even now. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be a people who do this and a people who share this. 
And Lord, protect us from trying to find our meaning in things that just cannot bear the weight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.